Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast, and we're here for the big one. We are doing podcast number 200. I should have a sound effect. Yeah, we're going to put in some sound effects. There you go. <laughs> it's our 200th episode. This is um, a lot of episodes. Okay. So we started this off, me teaching my daughter, Danielle, my uh, views of investing, which come directly from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and Ben Graham and investors of that sort who have done extremely well. And I want my daughter to invest like that. And we started off with Charlie basically saying, Here's the four things you need to do to invest. You know, you have to be capable of understanding that the business has to have intrinsic characteristics that make it durable, mm-hmm. give it a durable competitive advantage. It has to have, you know, honest and trustworthy management with integrity and talent. And you need to buy it on sale. And those four things are it. So what would you do the rest of the semester? And I have just calculated that we have done <laughs> not just the rest of the semester. <laughs> Just, can I just break in for a moment? Because this mm. is a classic dad move. And mm. I just want everybody to know what just happened here. Before the episode, dad immediately said, oh, it's the 200th episode. What does that mean in terms of numbers? Well, that calculates out too. And you're probably about to tell us, dad, your exact calculations. And I could Nearly couldn't... three semesters. <laughs> I didn't even follow the calculations. Right. And then you got to three semesters and of, of, of learning of classes, I guess, of, uh, tuition. Well, I might be slightly, I might be slightly nudging the time frame. I'm, I'm assuming an hour in class, it's actually about 50 minutes in class, right? For a normal class. And you do that three times a week and a typical semester is 12 weeks. So that's 36 hours in class, a little bit less, probably 35 or so. And um, we have roughly, on 200 podcasts, we have roughly 120 hours. So I'm figuring, you know, that's 30-some weeks. That's yeah. over two, over, it's over two semesters. That works for me. Yeah. So, so over the two point semesters is, of work here. In Charlie's thing, what would they have to do the rest of the semester? And as and you went through that, I had a flashback to all hmm. the times you had done that before about investing stuff. Oh, yeah. And how that is that process of, let me just tell you the numbers, is what <laughs> destroyed any interest I had in investing for so many years. <laughs> That's terrible. You know, in my <laughs> old age, I'm trying to not be as defensive. Right, not to be to be very supportive of criticism, but that's not criticism. that's not a criticism. I know it's not, it's, but I just thought I'd bring it up that I'm trying to be less oh. defensive. And actually, I was just defensive, <laughs> which right means there. you just took I it was as a just criticism. Defensive. I was like, oh, let me get defensive about my non-defensiveness. Yeah, but it's not <laughs> it's not a criticism. It's a statement of, and I say this to people all the time. Like this is how your brain works, which is what makes you naturally interested in investing, first of all, and secondly, very, very good at investing. And, and I just think it's a really important distinction to make because so many of us don't have that kind of brain, but that doesn't mean we can't learn this stuff. And I have 200 episodes to prove it to everybody. <laughs> you do. 
You do. But I thought, you know, honey, this this show, I thought, since this is the 200th show, we should uh, we should think about, you know, what guarantees success as an investor? Oh, I, I would like Wouldn't to know that about kinda, that. Yeah. You can guarantee would, me success? Mm-hmm. I don't like anything involving the word guarantee, I'm going to be honest with you. Well, I'm going to use it. All right. Guaranteeing success. So, and this comes, I don't know if this comes more from Tony Robbins or more from Ray Dalio. Tony Robbins, of course, is a phenomenal motivational. I think he's phenomenal. And, and you know, I got, I made you guys listen to the books and the tapes back when you were little kids. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm on stage pretty regularly with Tony around different parts of the country. And, and I, I don't know him real well or anything, but he's super, super motivational and, and really has a lot of people who have become extremely successful point to him and his techniques as a fundamental, fundamental reason why they've been successful. And he's done some um, recordings with Ray Dalio. I don't have them. And if I, if I can find them or if somebody out there can find them and send us the link, that'd be pretty cool. Um, I know Tony quoted him a lot in his, in his book, Money. Um, and Ray, Ray, if, if you haven't already known from listening to the podcast, Dalio is, runs Bridgewater, which is the largest hedge fund in the world, 160 billion of assets under management, which is just insane to think about. That's 160,000 million. billion? Yeah. That's $160,000 million. That's a lot to manage. And he has managed it with Jeez. some very rigorous Wait a second. mental That's, processes. I, we have to take a moment on okay. that particular piece of information. $160 billion mm-hmm. that he invests. Yes. That's got to be... I mean, I'm sure it's not only stocks, but that's got to be some huge percentage of the market. Oh, it's in the U.S. It's pretty. He, he started off doing. Um, he's he's a macro style investor, and he's he's his expertise is to look at what's going on in the whole world and figure out how to hedge it, basically, hmm. and do that with stocks, pr- principally currencies and stocks. But principally stock and bonds, stocks, bonds, currencies. I mean, he it, whatever asset groups are liquid, that's what he he puts money into. So he doesn't do a lot of illiquid stuff mm-hmm. like private equity. Mm-hmm. But he basically says, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna put the world into uh, four pots, if you will, and figure out what to do in each case, whatever pot we're in. And one pot is where we have inflation and growth. And another pot is where you have inflation and lack of growth or stagnation. And another pot is deflation and lack of growth or stagnation. And the fourth pot is deflation and growth. And that's the each uh, one of those, all-weather portfolio. Yeah, that's the all-weather stuff. And we wouldn't be talking much about Ray Dalio just because he's, if he was just big. But he's not only just big, but he's really successful as an investor. He's averaged, I think recently, it's, it's the correct number still, 18% compounded per year for 36 years. Wow. Which is a stunning track record. It's really getting close. Buffett is slightly better than that, um, but not hugely better. He's at about 20. So you can see, I mean, with this kind of money, obviously you have to be a pretty much a genius and have your own style. And their style is very different. Ray is a very active investor in and out of lots and lots of stuff. So I don't really track him as an investor per se. He's not a rule one style investor. And uh, in the sense that he buys a few things and holds them forever. That's not what he does. Mm. 
what he does is way hard and nobody seems to be able to copy him. And I don't think anybody really knows what he does exactly, except the people who work there. But let's just say that he's extremely successful in part because he's extremely driven by a code. Like, do these things and we will be successful. Yeah, he wrote that book, Principles, on right. his, about exactly. his principles that he runs Bridgewater on. Yeah, and we've talked a little bit about that. So, any case, I think he's brilliant. And I think that um, it would be wise, if you want to be successful, to, to look seriously at what successful people say they do. Yeah. So, what does he and say? they do that. Well, he says that there are... There are five things that if you do these five things, you will be successful. You will inevitably, here, the word is, I didn't, I said guarantee, <clears throat> sorry, Ray says inevitably, mm. which is pretty much the same thing, don't you think? I'm going to think about that answer. Is inevitably Go with me on this. It's close, at least, to guarantee. Yeah, uh, it's Inevitable close. means it's you're close. going to get there. You're going to get there. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to get there. So here, are you ready, want, to, want to jump into this? I want you to learn these things. And me too. I want to learn these things. I want to know what things. they are. I mean, yeah, this is, for sure. So yeah, I mean, this give is me the like, context here. So he said five things that, in, what is it, that you'll inevitably be successful if you follow them? Yeah, you do these over and over and over again. Um, because one of the five things is to persevere. And where does he, where did he say this? Um, good question. Is it an interview or uh, is it just like this? a blog post or did he write it somewhere? Hold on. I'm looking. It is an internet source of some sort. Told to recode executive editor Kara Swisher on her podcast, Recode Decode. Oh, sick. It's a podcast interview. All right. What? Maybe we could get Ray Dalio on here. Oh, we're going to get Charlie. I mean, guys, we tried to get Charlie <laughs> for the 200th episode, but I mean, no, yeah. Charlie's a little busy right now. Yeah, you know. couldn't do it. We're, we're working, working on it, it, though. We're working on getting to let Charlie know we're trying to talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> that is accurate. <laughs> okay, so here's Ray. And I don't know how you reach out to a guy like this. I'm, I'm so bad. By the way, networking is not a skill you're ever going to learn from me, Daniel. I am <laughs> so bad at it. You know, I've read a book once called How to Swim with the Sharks or something, and this really successful guy out of Minneapolis wrote, and he said he when he gets on a plane, he travels in first class, he gets on a plane, he chats up the person sitting next to mm -hmm. him, which is a horror show to me. I I mean, if I ever, if I sit with someone like that, I, I mean, my God, if you ever sit with me on a plane and I'm, I'm like not talking to you, it's not you, all right? It's me. Yeah. But- Someone who's trying to chat me up, man, the first thing I do is I open up my phone and put my nose in it and hope they get the message that I really don't want to talk. No, I'm with you. There are people who like to talk on planes and there are people who do not. And the town family are people who do not. And it's not that we're trying to be mean, but I'll tell you in my case, it's also because I get so motion sick and me turning, I get really motion sick on planes, trains, automobiles, everything. And turning my head to talk to anyone, even like if I'm traveling with you, dad, like I don't talk to you because turning nope. my head makes me more motion sick. So I have to just stare like oh. straight ahead and be really still. And I've got my whole methods. Yeah. There are many reasons people don't want to talk on airplanes. Yeah. So don't feel bad. Um, but yeah, and but you're right. It's like, that's out. always the networking advice, like from people who I think 
are of the half of the world that loves talking to people on airplanes, buses, elevators, whatever, wants to meet strangers, give a smile. And, and they, I think often don't understand that maybe there's other kinds of people, but it's not trying to be rude. And I, I don't think we're so alone in this just I don't because think so either. many people that I know of who are very successful and very wealthy have gone the private jet route as one way of thinking about that is how much they don't want to talk to someone sitting in the seat next to them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Here's that how much I don't want to talk to you. Of justification. I'm a jet. If that's, that's your reason. That's how much. <laughs> <laughs> we think about it. I have airport security to introduce famous, them to. If you're super famous, what are you trying to avoid by going not being in first class? You're trying to avoid sitting next to someone who's going to chat you up. Uh, that's true. That's fair. I guess I don't relate to the ultra famous lifestyle, but I do know that they get seated on the plane before anybody else or after everybody else so that they don't have to walk by everybody and, uh, mm. and or have people walk by them. There are methods, Dad. There There are methods. There's a friend of mine named Chris Dunham who's an Indian guy who does motivational speaking. And if you ever get a chance to listen to him, he is fantastic. And he he said once, he said, I was in this airport before the whole TSA thing and all the, you know, the whole security thing started happening. And this, you know, sort of known but not super well-known actress was there waiting to get on the plane. And this is the point in time when they were checking IDs right at the gate, Mm -hmm. right? And so they insisted that people take out their ID and show it to them to match the ticket. And people were doing that. And this lady expected they would just know who she is. Really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. That's a whole other level. So she didn't take out her ID. And then they asked her for her ID, which probably for her was very embarrassing because she assumed they obviously know who she is. (laughs) Right? And they didn't. (laughs) They didn't know she was famous. And so she was kind of embarrassed and she was actually pushed back and said, you don't, you don't know who I am. And the gate attendant said, no. And she, says, and she was flustered and holding up the line and Chris was behind her and he tapped her on the shoulder. He says, it happens to all of us. And she said, who are you? And he said, Gandhi. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. I love that guy. Anyway. The, the perils of fame. Sure. The perils of not enough fame, I suppose. You know what? Everybody's got problems. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's got their problems. I want to... Imagine that. The, the being mortified because they don't know who you are. There you go. Oh, Lord. So... Yeah. Uh, Life is tough. Do you remember when you were walking down the street with me in New York City after the book came out? I, is and there we were, a particular... We were walking along. Well, we were on Fifth Avenue. And we were walking along. We just looked at the book. I taught, I brought my two daughters to see my book. This is you know, in the bookstore at Barnes & Noble, in the window of the bookstore, <laughs> in a stack of books. There's, yeah, it was super it cool to see that. It was pretty cool. So you got to show your kids that, right? So the girls are walking along with me. And, and uh, you know. I mean, the, that's pretty amazing, we, by the way, like as a kid of somebody who's like your dad. <laughs> and then... Like the next thing you know, your dad has a book that's like not just one book in the front. If I remember right, I don't know if I remember correctly, you tell me, but I remember that there were like lots of books stacked up. Like it wasn't just, they had a real like display of rule number one. Yeah. It was like 
a dozen yeah. of them or something all stacked up. And it was and, right in this. Was pretty, and I was like totally scared of New York and was like this girl from Iowa. And we went on Fifth Avenue. And I think we, you know, like visited Tiffany. And it was all just very exciting. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there was your book. And that was pretty wild to see. Like, imagine that. Imagine your dad writes a book and it goes in the front of the bookstore and on Fifth Avenue in New York that it was, I don't even have the right words, but it's just, it's just sort of wild. It's like a, it's like a, what's going on here <laughs> kind of experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, not to digress too far, but then you had the same experience Tell me about it. of seeing your book sitting out there, our book sitting out there. I think that's, that's that right. Was, it was the same kind of experience minus the whole Except like for me it was like ah oh, my daughter has a book out that was sweet <laughs> it's sweet dad yeah yeah it that was pretty cool sweet, and we went to the same bookstore and we and looked for the book <laughs> and, signed, and books. signed books and it was that in was the front cool. not quite as big of a display but you know um hopefully you guys will note that danielle and i are not you know we're, we're, we're not overly impressed with our own success, own success with these books. It's more like we're, we're sort of shocked. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> and you sort of wander around going, hey, look at this. But you know what? Look what just I've happened. I've never met anybody who published a book that didn't have that feeling. Even like rich and famous people who are in other fields, you know, like I think especially like investor types who, you know, are not really writers. Um, they... Uh, like people who have published books who are not professional writers. It's like this strange, like books just seem so different from the worlds we live in. And it's like something that other people do. And to, to have one that's out is just a wild experience. I think for everybody, I've never met anyone who's published a book, regardless of how successful, how rich, how famous, whatever, who wasn't amazed that they wrote a book and it got published. I know it's kind of a cool thing. So you and you and your sister and I were walking down the street after that amazing experience. And the first road we came to, we started to cross. And as we started to cross the crosswalk, a guy turned in front of us on the crosswalk and rolled his window down, stopped, rolled his window down and said, Phil Town. <laughs> and then rolled it up and drove away. And your sister looked at me and said, Dad. You have fan. <laughs> Which was right. One. All right. Dang. That's it awesome. Was pretty, I mean, on the level of like, you just saw your dad's book in the bookstore and now some dude like drove by and recognized him. That's another level of like, what the heck is going on here? Now, here's the best part. It's been, oh gosh, 10, 12 years now. And no one has ever done that since. <laughs> he was your fan, Dad. I have never been recognized walking down the street. Now, nobody had better do it, it to you because they would ruin the perfect record of your fan. <laughs> I have fan. Oh, man. So let's go back to Ray because we're talking about success. And success as an investor, I suppose, actually, this is success for anything you want to do or be successful. Okay. At. So let's, let's start, let's check it out. So we've got five, you um, said, right? Yeah, we got five All of right. them. And 
man, he, he, what happened with Ray that created such a need for these principles to anchor on is that he figured out um, where the market was going and he was 100% wrong. Now, remember, this is a guy who's a macro investor who, who's playing the market. Not he's, he is rolling, so rolling he, it. So when you say playing um, the market, you mean he's like trying to time the market in exactly the way that we actively avoid doing. Okay, got right. it. So he's trying to predict like 100%. what's going to happen with countries, what's going to happen with economies, what's going to happen with world wars, right. like all that kind of stuff, and then and then invest accordingly. Got it. Right. Now, what Ray experienced back then with this massive prediction and the big bet that he made on it was that he was dead wrong. When when was this? He thought the economy in the early 80s was going into a recession, and, and it was the actual beginning of an 18-year straight-up bull run the biggest mm. one ever and he missed it and was going the wrong way on it and was short that whole thing and it nearly wiped him out he he had to borrow four thousand dollars from his dad to pay his rent well i don't know that I mean, part of the Ray down legend he laid off almost all of his employees and i mean almost shut the fund down and when was and, that um, in the 70s like 83 okay. i think right there were right yeah, right where I was just getting going as an investor, he, working off a different set of principles. You guys must be around right? the same age, right? So, like, he was probably... Yeah, we're really close to the same age. And in fact, we both started doing meditation at almost oh, cool. the same year, 1970. And that, that is one interesting part of Dalio is he is both a long... He's three things that I actually connect with him on. Um, so, when he and I get together to chat, <laughs> we'll have lots to talk about. One is that he does the same kind of meditation I do, transcendental meditation, and he started about the same time and attributes a, a lot of his success in life, yeah, if not does. all of it, he, to mm -hmm. meditation. And um, second is that he is also a hunter, a bow hunter, which doesn't often go into the same sentence as meditator. And thirdly, he's a successful investor. And I like to hunt and I'm I'm an okay investor and... We do the meditation thing. So I, I just, that's that's why Ray and I are no doubt going to be so close in the future I don't and such good not. friends. <laughs> I, don't know that our, I don't know that our paths will ever cross. But he, he let me come back to this, this amazing thing is that he nearly went under as a result of, I guess how he would characterize it would be hubris, this mm. over, up, over positive thinking, overly positive, overly certain. Mm. Um, about where things were going to go. And this, um, I guess this informed basically his investing strategies for the rest of his life. And he essentially worked very hard to never make that mistake again, never to believe so much in certainty about the direction of things that he overcommitted in that direction, which in our way of investing is to say, you know, we're not going to put all the eggs in one basket because we're never 100% no certain about anything. Yeah, there's just no guarantees out there. But that for most of us, the best and the closest we can come to getting it right for the long term is to be as certain as possible about something, a high degree of comfort level before you decide, yeah, I'm in this thing. And only think about doing that maybe 20 times in your life and have a huge margin mm -hmm. of safety while you're at it. So... <clears throat> so here's the the five principles Ray said would cause us to inevitably succeed if you do this over and over and over again, okay? Ready. Which is actually principle number five. 
So there's really only Wait, four other ones. Wait, what's principle number five? To do it over oh, and we'll over get, and over get again. Get to that in to order. Let's go in order. What's number one? <clears throat> okay, number one. Set audacious goals. Ah, the old BHAG. Mm-hmm. The old, big, hairy, audacious goals. And I would, I would say, I like that. I'm, I just have a, here's what I do. When, I, when, we, when I'm teaching our classes, I like to tell people that the problem with goals is the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And a goal, if you don't treat it aggressively enough, is, is really an intention. And I think what Ray's talking about is to basically make something you're really committed to. Be fully committed. Not like, you know, I'm going to go down and mm-hmm. work out. I mean, you're committed to it and you do the things necessary. So first off, I would like to see people make promises rather than goals. Like I'm going to promise I'm going to get to financial independence in five years. And what that means is it's a million dollars or something like that, right? You nail it down and make a promise. I'm going to do this, period. Otherwise, the whole thing slides. Yeah, I think um, it reminds me of what Jack Canfield wrote in, uh, what is his book that it was like the huge bestseller? Anyway, Jack Canfield's Success Success. Principles, yeah. Um, And he basically says this as well on the principle that um, if you set a huge goal and you miss it, you're still going to be pretty happy with yourself he because you've set a much higher goal and you've reached higher than you would have otherwise so he says something like he had a Mm. goal to make i don't know what it was but let's say a million dollars in the next like three years and he was making zero dollars and he missed his goal because he made only nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars and he said do you think i was upset (laughs) and i always think of that So there's a, I think there's a, there's a magic formula here for, for goals that Jonas Salk told me. And I think it's really valuable. And that is that you have to be committed. Dr. Salk, whenever he was um, given an award for saving the lives of millions of people through inventing the Salk polio vaccine, he was often um, honored at like places where they were going to raise a lot of money for, for muscular dystrophy or cancer Mm. or AIDS and, you know, they would do that to, you know, have a reason for everybody to get together and hear from a great person. And Dr. Salk, on every one of those, told me that he would require that they, that the producer of the event would put this place card on everybody's $1,000 plate, right? You buy the plate for $1,000 and then you're donating. And the place card was essentially a quote that is, I think, finally attributed to a Scottish mountain climber, but has often been attributed to Goethe. And I don't have the quote, essentially, but you can look it up. It, it essentially says it, whatever, when it, that the critical thing to achieving the impossible is to be fully committed to it. Mm-hmm. Right? So mm-hmm. full commitment, burn the ship's level of, I am going to do this. Not that I hope I will, or I, I wish I would, but that you're absolutely committed to it and <clears throat> you, you will do it or die. That's what I mean by a promise or... That, that level of commitment. And Dr. Salk said that without that, you miss out on all of this magic that happens from nature, that somehow when you make this full promise, this full commitment, I am absolutely going to do this. I'm going to make a million dollars in the next five years. Then nature moves at the same time. Nature moves too. 
to provide you with support from places you could have never Hmm. imagined. I think that's really true. I think that's really true. What's number two? Number two, notice your mistakes. Notice your mistakes. He said, as you go to those, um, you're going to encounter failures and you're going to have to identify those and not Mm -hmm. tolerate them. I couldn't agree more with that. And it's hard. And that's the reason he has to even say that because it's obvious, right? Of course, you should notice your mistakes because there are mistakes and they're painful and you definitely notice them. But then generally what we do is turn away from them very quickly because they're so painful. It's not fun to dwell on our mistakes. And in order to notice them, we have to dwell on them enough to think about how to not make them again. And that can be painful enough that most of us don't do it without being conscious. I'll tell you, that's, that's, <clears throat> sorry. that's really the reason why um, we teach and, and we study super successful yeah. people. Because often we notice that we didn't succeed, but yeah, we don't know that's why. that's a really good point. Right. So Ray is saying, notice your mistake, but that's a big step. That's like, what did I just do wrong there? I don't know. Imagine like, I mean, I I know you probably have never done. Well, let's let's do yoga. Okay. Let's say yoga and you're in a posture and it hurts or you're not getting where you want to go and you're not improving, Mm -hmm. but you don't know why. I mean, that's why you have a yoga instructor, a coach. Like something as simple as downward dog is so easy to do wrong, oh, isn't yeah. it? Well, I mean, it's not that easy to do wrong. But if you have <laughs> if you have something going on with your body, with your anatomy that might be a little different than somebody else, which we all have, then, and you're really like, once you're really getting deeply into poses, then that's where you can actually hurt yourself by um, by following general instruction when you shouldn't be. And I think that's why coaching and instruction is so, so, so useful. I mean, just a couple of years ago, I remember reading an article about executive coaches. And it was at that time a pretty new phenomenon. Like now it's kind of normal, but in only a few years. But, you know, I think this was maybe five years ago, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about executive coaching and how CEOs and heads of organizations were having somebody come in and actually coach them on being a business manager. And it was kind of hard for them to do that because it indicated that maybe they needed help, which is hard for people to Mm -hmm. telegraph to their organization. But they brought these people in and found huge benefits because somebody outside of you can see stuff that I can't see. I mean, as, as conscious as I am, as aware of I am, somebody who's standing behind me can see that I'm doing downward dog wrong. Right. And it takes them half a second. Mm -hmm. So that's where, um, yeah, you're exactly right. Sometimes it's hard. You don't know. And having some help can really make a big difference. Yeah. And it's like, it's funny. The the more you know about something, almost the more you realize that you need that. Um, Like when I first started riding horses, I didn't think I needed a coach. I mean, you just get up there and ride. And the more you ride, the better you get. And that's all true, right? I mean, you just ride and... Gradually, you get better and better, but there'll come a point where you don't get better. Like you, you're, and what's going on is you're making mistakes as a, as a rider in terms of how you're communicating with a horse. 
that limit what you mm. can do with that horse. Like the horse is listening to you, but your 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 language only has like four mm. words in it. When the horse is capable of two hundred words uh, sure. through your body, right? So you, what I've been learning just recently, I've been riding seriously, like nearly daily for years, decade or more. And, um, and what I've just learned from Melissa is that the, you have this capability to move a horse around by just shifting your weight slightly forward or mm -hmm. slightly back. And the horse will increase or decrease their pace according to where that, yeah. I'm talking in an But inch, for you to inch. be able to do that and communicate it to the horse, you first had to get to the point where you could even feel it. Right. I You're, had to get to Like that you're spot leveling up I'm, right now in your riding uh -huh. and you couldn't level up till you got to this level. Right. Right. I remember, I remember how frustrated I was years ago. I literally... You know, I, I thought I was doing what my instructor was saying to do, and my horse wasn't doing what I wanted him to do. And, of course, I'm blaming horse. the horse. Obviously. It's so much easier to blame the horse, you know. <laughs> it's not me. I'm doing what you say. And it's it gets so frustrating. I, I, I remember being so frustrated. I got off the horse and started kicking my helmet around the arena like a four-year-old. And... <laughs> And it's because I thought I was doing everything right and the horse just wouldn't cooperate. And honestly, you look back at that, it's really embarrassing. I mean, I remember being really frustrated on one polo pony and taking a lesson down in, in Indio. Um, taking, I was taking weeks of lessons down there and playing polo. And, and this horse, as I came onto the ball, this horse would run over the ball. Like I would ride the horse up to the ball and then as I'd get closer, he would just start angling mm -hmm. over the top of the ball. And... What I didn't realize, and it made me so frustrated, I was so angry at this horse and kind of at the classes because surely this instructor should have good horses, right? I'm paying, paying good money to be out there to learn and this horse isn't a good Because what they're horse. supposed to do, I just for those of us I'm who so don't play polo, is, is run next to the ball? Okay. Yeah, you want to run a couple feet off, the, off the side of the ball. Okay, got it. Exactly, so you can hit it with your mallet. And here's what's going on. I mean, just looking back on it, it really is embarrassing. I honestly sick to my stomach thinking about how I was thinking about this horse. And no doubt the horse knew I was very frustrated with them. And I mean, just from, they're very intuitive and they kind of know what's going on up there. And so um, what I was doing was I was, as I was coming closer to the ball, my weight would go heavier on my right stirrup as I started to lean over to hit the ball. Oh. I wasn't holding myself in a balanced position on the saddle with my left leg and keeping myself centered. Instead, I was leaning out over the ball and that made him go to the right. Because he was expecting to have a very highly tuned rider. Yeah. Yes. Whereas some other like less he good horse actually, I bet right. wouldn't have done that because some less good horse wouldn't would know that he was just supposed, yeah, would notice, notice and would know that like, oh, what I do is run near the ball every time. I run straight to the ball. You yeah, can bounce exactly. around all you want up there. And and this horse was more highly trained and understood that if I leaned on my right stirrup, oh, wow. go right. That's a signal to go right. My weight <clears throat> is shifting to go right. I felt so bad. Uh, you know, this like yeah. two or three years later when I finally started figuring this out. So... It, you know, having a having 
the ability to notice the mistakes is really a high level of self-awareness that most of us are not there. And that would be the one problem I would say that, that I would have with this list right now is, okay, I'm noticing I didn't hit the mm-hmm. ball. But it's not my mistake. It's the horse. It's the weather. It's the luck. It's, you know, anything but mm-hmm. not me. It, it feels like in that, in that city. And I'm not a person that's afraid of blaming myself. It's just that the obvious answer seemed to be mm-hmm. not me. Yeah, because you had been writing enough. And that's easy to do in investing. That's yeah, really well, very I was just easy thinking while you it's, were saying that, that, uh, you know, I don't know how, well, maybe six months after we were writing, we were finishing the manuscript of our book and we were, you had written this beautiful checklist of mistakes that investors make. And at some point in the revisions, I added a couple of things to that checklist because there was some issue with like the pagination or something. And I don't know, we needed to like add an extra line. So I was like, Oh, oh, I know enough. I'll just throw it in. And you were like, you read it and you were like, what the heck is this? It doesn't even make sense. It's contrary to the other (laughs) points that are above this. And you, and you explained, I don't even remember what I wrote. I wish I did. Um, so I don't make that mistake of whatever it was. But but I as soon as you explained it, I realized, oh yeah, that was the most boneheaded thing anybody could write. And I can't even believe like you're still working with me on this project at this point. And and like six months <laughs> I don't remember what you wrote either, but I do remember it was shockingly contrary yeah. to where we were supposed yeah, to be it going was with totally this list. Stupid. And I don't know how that came out of me. And uh and like six months later. I was working through the checklist and remember doing that. And I just thought, God, remember that. Remember that feeling. Remember that mm. I did that out of overconfidence, out of, out of knowing enough to be dangerous, knowing enough to where I thought I knew enough. <laughs> and how do, you, how do you feel that in yourself? I don't have an answer to that. That's where a teacher comes in. Well, let's talk about that a little more next time. I think um, let, just so you have this in one podcast, Dalio's five uh, five steps to inevitable success are first, set goals. Second, notice your mistakes. Third, understand why you oh. are making those mistakes. <laughs> there you Fourth, go. Fix your mistakes. Understand why you're making those and mistakes. Five, What's four? Yeah. Number oh, four oh, is fix your mistakes. Fix mistakes. And number five, okay. persevere. So th- there's, we'll go deeper in those persevere. next time. Because I think there's a lot to un- unwrap I've right I've really there, enjoyed actually. our 200 episode and that, and that we're, I, I, no, I was, I like, it's like, um, it's, it's sort of an encapsulation of our podcast wherein we are sort of talking about value investing, but really we're talking about what value investing is about, which is the practice of life and of finding good things to put ourselves into in our lives. So thank you. Wow. I don't think we've ever said that before well, on it's, here. It's how I feel about that it. Again? That value investing leads us to a practice, which leads us to actually realizing that we're practicing. Yeah. It's, it, it, yeah I mean, it's, it's about investing in our lives. 
in more ways than simply there you go um, with money. It's about finding value in our lives and the practice that comes from that. Um, and and I think nice. I think what I find so extraordinary nice. about investing is learning from people like Ray Dalio, who are very deep thinkers, not only about money and numbers, which is how I always thought of them, but no, like people who do this stuff are really intelligent and think about far more than simply charts and numbers. Well, I think you've always maintained that this isn't about getting rich. This is about living a rich life and having um, the financial ability to do that doesn't need mean that you need a ton of money. It, it means you need financial independence to be able to kind of follow and yeah, live the and life you want Yeah, and I think you you're doing it to get rich. And you don't end up like Ray Dalio. I mean, look at him. He's rich. <laughs> There's no reason for him to be doing this stuff. Mm. Lots of people who do this. There's no financial reason for them to keep doing it. But it's it's for right. the love of the game. But it's for the love of... It's for what it yeah. does in your life. Yeah. What it does in your life is magic. There's really wonderful things that happen. So let's let's talk some more about how we become inevitably successful. Number three, four, according and to five. Ray Dalio. And on okay. our... <laughs> yeah. See you go. at 201. Until then, time to go play. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Bye. See you. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, show notes, and more episodes visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.